Welcome to Parenting Podcast Live at Brentwood Oaks. Uh, I've said this every week for the last 10 weeks, but in this 12-week session, we are inviting guests into our classroom to help us answer the question, how do I talk to my kids about blank? And then we have filled in the blank with topics that were selected by you, the class members. Um, and so as most of us are parents, but many of us work with children on a regular basis, so we think it's very important for us to learn to navigate these critical conversations um, with each other and then translate that into an age-appropriate way to talk to our kids. And so, you know, this is never going to be the end of the conversation. It's really just the beginning. And so we hope that everyone will take what we discussed today and then bring that into their social circles, into their families. Um, in the months to come and continue this conversation. So with that, we have this morning here to talk to us, uh, Dr. Deanne Stewart and Dr. Keith Stanglin. Welcome, thank you for being here. And they're here to help us discuss how do I talk to my kids about gender and sexuality. Um, So Keith is not new to us. He kind of has bookended this class. He was here at the beginning and so um, a short introduction for him his wife Amanda is here and then he has three children Paul Isaac and Rachel um, and he is a he teaches scripture and historical theology at Austin grad Um, Dr. Stewart is new to us she got her bachelor's and master's from the University of Dallas and then her PhD from Baylor and currently she works as the associate director of curriculum and outreach at the Austin Institute for the study of family and culture Is there an acronym for that? (laughs) (laughs) Just Austin Institute. Austin Institute, gotcha. Um, And there she spends her hours finding and translating good social science research, primarily on marriage, family, and sexuality, into a format that's friendly for non-specialists such as ourselves. Um, And her most recent project was to translate research on sexuality and gender issues for church and civic leaders. So really a wonderful guest for us to have here today. Thank you. So we usually have some sort of text poll, and what we have today is just kind of getting a sense from the group of how many of us know or are close to somebody who uh, experiences either same-sex attraction or transgender identity. And so we see here a lot of people, a majority maybe of who's here right now has personally knows someone who's same-sex attracted. Fewer know someone who is transgender, but still, um, it's an issue that a lot of us are coming into contact with on a regular basis. And so, to start out, um, just wanted to ask, this is a a pretty complex issue, and we're gonna kinda key on these two, the same-sex attraction and transgender identity today. Um, And we've kind of gotten a sense from the class and from questions that have been raised that these two are, the most forefront in our minds, either because they're more, um, we're experiencing them more, or they're just more confusing to us, maybe, is why we're asking more questions about these particularly. Um, but to start, wanted to ask about um, transgender identity. And I did have just a scripture that a lot of people, a lot of Christians use when thinking about this issue in particular, Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So I think um, just as kind of where a lot of us are starting out, I think the scripture kind of encapsulates that. But um, there are so many different ways of talking about this, and they're rapidly evolving. And so can you help us understand some of the terms that we're most likely to see, and kind of three of those that 
we identified might be the most um, relevant are sex, gender identity, and expression. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you asked about these terms because in speaking with family members and friends, um, if you go to visit the pediatrician and you have to fill out that information form, um, these terms, um, sex assigned at birth, um, gender identity, and gender expression, they're appearing more frequently on uh, pediatric intake forms. So it's, it's good to know what these terms mean right. because you're likely to encounter them when you go to the pediatrician. Yeah. Um, so I want to define what these terms mean because it's very helpful. I'm using the graphic that's often um, used to explain them in schools. So this is what kids are getting to help explain <coughs> these terms. Here's the gender unicorn. Um, it used to be the gender-bred man, um, but that was a little too gender normative, and so now they use the, the gender unicorn. And so some, some terms that you find up here uh, are first, um, sex assigned at birth. It's right here in the middle of the chart. Um, notice the language, um, sex assigned at birth. And this is sex uh, used to refer to biological sex versus gender, which was a more fluid term that could vary by culture and what sort of gender roles were assigned in each individual culture. That's how it's used scientifically, but we're noticing that the language is changing. So we'll see terms like sex assigned at birth. Um, I'm not exactly sure um, who does the assigning at birth, whether it's the doctor. I was talking to some medical professionals and they said, um, am I the one who's doing it or is it parents who assign it at birth? Um, that's kind of unclear, but you see this one term. So sex assigned at birth, uh, female, male, um, intersex. The percentage of people who are actually truly intersex, meaning that they have ambiguous genitalia because of some sort of um, hormonal anomaly um, is very small. And we're talking, I think I saw for uh, females, one in every 100,000 births are born with a, this condition that when it's complete. And there, there's, some, there's some other numbers, but it, it's just a rare condition. Um, but it is actually rooted in the body. There's something you can point to in the body. When it comes to, though, gender identity, um, this is not something that's rooted in the body. And it refers to a person's understanding of him or herself or their self, the plural pronoun is sometimes used, um, as, as a sexed person, as an individual person. So gender identity is up here in the mind, um, my idea of myself, how I picture myself. And then gender expression has to do with how it is that I, that I express that. So uh, my clothing styles, my hairstyles, um, so all the ways that I sort of physically take on um, my understanding of myself. So these are the three main terms that you'll find. And so um, something that I kind of heard in my research on doing this is that a lot of these things are on a spectrum. So what does that mean, the spectrum? Right. Uh, so the, the spectrum term <laughs> is often used to push against this understanding of there being too rigid gender there being a rigid gender binary. So there are only two sexes, male, female, that's it. Um, in order to push back against that, they say, well, let's sort of sideline the whole idea of sex um, and let's talk about gender, you know, somebody's perception of who they are. Um, on this fluid gender spectrum, people can have a lot of different ideas of who they are, a lot of different understandings of who they are. So they would say, that I think Facebook, last time I saw, had something like, 
around 60 different choices for gender. It might even be higher now. I've seen on some, some people have said it's as high as 100 because when you're rooting it on somebody's individual understanding, it leaves open room for a whole bunch of, you know, plurality of, of responses. Right. Um, well, and so you mentioned gender and having cultural a, a cultural aspect to that. And so our ideas about gender, our roles, and our expression have it changed over time. So even within Christian circles, women used to never wear pants or work outside the home. And now those are things, they're not considered masculine anymore. Um, and so in terms of a question that we have is, or that Brandon and I have talked about a lot, is what is it that makes a man a man or a woman a woman for all time in the mind of, of God? Like, despite culture, is it just anatomy, what you're talking about, this kind of sex aspect of it? That, or is there something else, another distinction? And I thought, Keith, maybe you could talk a little to that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, when you say in the mind of God, that's already difficult. So uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if I can speak to that um, particularly. Sure, sure. But uh, we do know God's mind at least through a couple of ways. One is through nature. He's revealed himself through nature, so I think we can uh, learn from that, learn from creation, and then obviously through scripture. So for those of us who are uh, believers, scripture um, ought to have sort of the first and final say in these things. I think Genesis 1 that you uh, cited earlier is probably the best text to go to there, where uh, the image of God is, uh, in human nature, male and female together. Um, so it seems like, based on that, there is a binary, um, pretty hard binary, of male and female. Um, and again, if we didn't have scripture, we could probably look around in nature and come up with that same conclusion mm -hmm. as well. So when the, both of those kind of go together, that's pretty strong testimony from a Christian point of view. Um, that it's not something that some patriarchal society back there decided to start assigning to people. Mm -hmm. You know, This is um, across cultures and across um, anybody really who's observant about these things. Um, and so I think, yeah, we can say that God intended for male and female to be a real thing, a permanent thing. When we talk about, maybe if we use the terms masculine and feminine, of course, some of those things are more relative to culture and cultures even themselves change over time. Some of those I don't think are rooted in, and the Bible doesn't address this directly, but aren't rooted in nature or in kind of God's creation intention. So if we associate a color with male and a color with female, that seems pretty arbitrary culturally, mm -hmm. right? Not something that's tied to the, the creation intent of God. Other things, roles we might think of, probably are tied more to creation and the obvious physical differences mm -hmm. between most men and most women. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that helps yeah. or if you need to follow up on that. But yep. yeah. I want to give an example because yeah. um, so what we find for men, we find rooted in their bodies that they tend toward having greater physical strength. And so that 
that ability of theirs um, can manifest itself differently in different cultures. I was talking to a lady who's from Africa. She said that in one tribe um, in Africa, the men carry the small children around because of their greater physical strength. <laughs> so so there's, there's a different task that they perform, but it's rooted in their biological reality that they are physically stronger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. the, those roles that are tied to the what we see in creation. Mm -hmm. Well, and so you mentioned pink or blue, and yeah. a question I did have about really just stereotypes. And as I've been thinking about this, I wonder if sometimes those gender stereotypes can be po problematic in our understanding of our gender identity. So like as an example, if you're a boy and you don't like boy things like sports, you know, do you start to question, am I a boy? You know, and if those types of stereotypes can um, be harmful in some ways to our understanding of gender identity. So can you talk maybe a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I was uh, speaking to a, a pediatric um, psychologist who works with a lot of kids who face, who are in the middle of trauma. So she works with a lot of kids who either have some kind of gender dysphoria or um, some other problem. And, and she said that she often finds that uh, bookish boys or boys that don't really like rough and tumble play mm -hmm. um, that they're at the younger during the younger years they're sometimes some of the most vulnerable um, just because they don't fit into a rigid gender stereotype but the thing is I mean if you're rooted in who you are biologically as male or female there's such a wide range of things you can do and everything that you do if since I'm a woman everything I do will bear the stamp of my femininity because I will do it in a feminine way whether I'm doing home repairs which I actually like to do and I'm pretty good at or you know I think of my husband who's an excellent cook and when he cooks he does it in a masculine way because it springs from who he is you know as a man and so I, I think that it's true when we sort of get into this you know what the advertisers tell us that girls are supposed to like pink and dolls and nail polish you know or boys are supposed to like BB guns dirt and sports and that's it mm -hmm. and when we're that limiting then sh they're gonna be almost all of us I would say in this room do not fall neatly <laughs> into these right. very rigid um, gender stereotypes so it is important <coughs> to let kids know that there's a wide range of things they can do mm -hmm. I think that ironically uh, what we see happening especially with the whole gender spectrum is that instead of saying male female with a wide range of things that you can do we're seeing this sort of uh, narrowing down of well I'm trans man meaning I was born a female but identify as a male and you see the range is much mm, narrower because you won't I, I don't think I have found too many people who adhere so vehemently to these more narrow gender stereotypes than trans men or trans women, because y you see how they kind of, they really cling to some of those stereotypical behaviors. Right, that is ironic. Um, well, and so, you know, just talking about all the different ways that kids express themselves, our daughter loves to pretend to be all different kinds of people and characters, young, old, animals, boys, girls. And we were kind of laughing about that because she loves to pretend to be her Uncle Ben all the time. And a friend of ours was like, well, that's going to have to stop pretty soon. And I was kind of like, why? But in their mind, it was because a reaction, I, th I think, to kind of some of these issues and that um, we they were concerned that she might start identifying herself as a boy or something or, you know, people might start questioning that. And so 
as our children are playing and exploring and doing all of these different things that kids do, for instance, I, my brother asked my mom to paint his nails when he was little and she did it. And so like as parents, how do we react to some of those things? And um, should we be concerned about that? Um, I would say uh, be watchful, but uh, don't overdo it. <laughs> you don't want to overreact. Um, because multiple factors have to come together in order for a kid to experience gender dysphoria, which is that feeling of distress. It's defined scientifically as the feeling of distress when um, how you think of yourself here doesn't match up with your biological sex. Um, so it can cause tremendous distress in kids. Um, so that's what's meant by gender dysphoria, but multiple factors have to come together. Um, one isolated thing isn't, <laughs> right. isn't gonna be an indication that kid might be gender dysphoric. That being said, I wanna give parents some things to look out for based upon um, the research that's been done. Uh, first, um, I wanna point out that if your kid is younger, I'm gonna talk about young kids first and then I'm gonna talk about teenagers. Um, for young kids, um, you often find there are more boys who, are, who experience some gender dysphoria than girls at a young age. Um, now, there are some natural things that are going on in all kids right around that age. They become aware of sex differences for the first time. And sometimes kids will hyper-identify with their biological sex. So I had a niece, um, she has five brothers, and they would say, hey, we're gonna go out to play soccer. And she'd say, okay, wait, I gotta put my heels on first. <laughs> and so she'd wear her heels when she was three, you know, and then run out and play soccer. So you can sometimes have like a hyper-identification with your biological sex, or sometimes a hypo-identification with that biological sex, and these are normal kinds of things is what the psychologist will tell us. Um, you also, right in that three to five year range, you come into contact with boundaries for the first time, limitations. And so kids who look upon, who see their bodies as a kind of limitation, it limits their imaginations, you know? Um, well, I thought I could be anything I want, you know? And, and so there's this limitation on that. Um, then you might find, and it's a natural thing, to some pushing back against that, well, maybe I'm a girl. So, and some of these are natural, uh, so you really shouldn't worry about that too much. Um, but I wanna tell you some things to look out for. Um, let's say that your, your boy uh, consistently for six months to a year has consistently been saying, you know, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm a girl, I'm a girl. You look for consistency. Um, then there are some things that you can do. Watch out for that. Um, what can you do? Um, well. Ask yourself, does he have a lot of same-sex peers that he plays with? Because if he doesn't, then you can go out and actually find some same-sex peers who are interested in the same things that he's interested in so that he's playing with those peers and he's like, hey, they're boys, I'm a boy. And, and we like the same things. And so it's one thing that you can do. Um, something else, um, let's say that uh, your little boy, he's three, um, a baby sister is born and he starts wanting to wear dresses like his baby sister. Um, a sound pediatrician will tell you that this is also normal. Um, and what do you do? In that case, maybe that boy is just communicating that he needs a little bit more attention from you, that the baby sister is getting a lot of attention and this is one way to try to make a, a plea for more attention. Um, uh, or how about this? Uh, sometimes, especially when you have this you know, consistent identification, um, Kenneth Zucker, he's a Canadian um, gender identity clinic 
specialist. He ran one in Canada for 20 years. Um, he said that uh, he looked to uh, disorder in the family sometimes, um, especially for very young kids. Um, what's going on there? Parents might not even be aware of it. There was this one case study where uh, a mother brought her son in and he started digging into the past because he was uh, dressing, wanted to dress like a girl and was identifying as a girl. And so he the mother brought in the, her son and he found out, the, uh, Dr. Zucker found out that she had been raped when she was younger and that without meaning to, um, she was communicating to her son, she was not aware that she was communicating this, that she, but she was, that men are dangerous. And so her son was responding to this um, by um, saying that he was a girl. And so once she dealt with her issues, then the behaviors went away in her son. So sometimes, especially for very small kids, you might want to look at, at some kind of disorder in the family. He also found that mothers who brought their sons in had a higher percentage of psychiatric disorders. So he said 50% of the boys who came in had mothers who had two or more psychiatric um, conditions diagnosable. Um, so some things to look for there. Um, at the same time, uh, so I would say be patient, look for these things, um, but also you want to affirm that, that kid's biological sex. Say it's so cool that yeah. you are a boy. <laughs> look at all these things that God's made you to do. And, and so those are some things to look out for. Um, where we're really seeing a rise in identification though is among teenagers. Um, so I want to show you just a couple yeah. graphics here. Uh, this data was taken from the um, Tavistock Clinic in the UK. There's only one clinic in the UK that takes in all cases of uh, pediatric uh, gender dysphoria. So it's great because you get all the data from one country um, in one place. And this is what they've seen. You can see the years here. 2014 to 2015, 2015 to 2016, and so on, all the way up to 2018, 2019. Um, the yellow line is female, the blue line is male, and you can see that when it comes to sex, we're, see and the, we're seeing a lot more females. You, can, you get a really steep rise. A lot of females who are coming into these clinics um, who are expressing um, some kind of possible gender dysphoria. Um, I wanna show you one more slide after this. And, and you can see here uh, what age they are. Wow. Um, he broke down the age. So you see here three to four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and then suddenly um, this rise, especially in females, starts right around puberty uh, at the age of 12, and then it intensifies 13, 14, 15, and then starts going down right about the age of 16. So during these really formative years right after the onset of puberty, that's where we're seeing an explosion in cases of kids who will come out as gender dysphoric. So what do you watch out for? Um, there was a researcher at Brown University, her name is Lisa Littman. Um, these were some things that she found, some patterns she found in girls who were, um, suddenly they had shown no signs of having any sort of problem with their biological sex before, but when they hit puberty, suddenly they were saying, coming out um, rapidly. Like within a course of, parents only saw changes over the course of three months and their kids would say, their daughters would say, I think I'm, I'm trans. Um, so these were some trends that she found. So these are some things to watch out for. Um, one would be pay attention to their friend groups um, because she found that 20 in 20% of the cases, um, one or two friends had come out 
right before everybody else in the friend group. Oh, nice. So these friend groups have a huge influence on each other in mean, those teenage years. Um, something else to watch out for, um, excessive YouTube viewing and social media activity. Um, in I think 22% of the cases, um, there had been a huge spike in YouTube viewing and social media activity. They, they go to um, like Reddit and Tumblr um, and they meet up with other groups there and then this happened right before they came out to their parents and saying that they were trans. 45% um, of parents who were surveyed said that both of these things had happened right before their kids came out. So we're talking 87% of the parents who were surveyed said that their kids had manifested one of these two things right before coming out as trans. Um, so those are the biggest factors, but some other things to pay attention to. Has your daughter's um, uh, have your daughter's interests narrowed suddenly so that there's sort of obsessive thinking about gender identity. Um, wanting to wear mask, masculine clothes. That's the way that one teenager online talked about it. Um, does your daughter have high levels of social anxiety? Um, that can be correlated to coming out as trans. They don't feel like they fit in socially with their same-sex peer group, and so maybe this would solve their problems. Um, you see high numbers of autistic kids who are coming out as trans, too, because of the social element. Um, has your daughter distanced herself from friends and family um, and everyone who isn't gender-affirming, trans-affirming in the, in the friend group is an enemy? So you'll sort of see this pulling back from everything else, from family and interests, and sort of obsessively focusing in on gender identity. Those were some of the factors that Lisa Lippman found happened right before mm -hmm. these teenage girls came out. Um, and then, of course, love them, cry with them. There will probably be a lot of tears. We were talking to some parents whose daughter, teenage daughter, had come out. She said, oh, fights and tears and pain and suffering, but suffer with them and for them. Um, a lot of that going on, but maintain ties with those children because their tendency is going to be to reject you and to pull away from the family, but you're the only one who might be giving them a message that there's some a different way um, other than just transitioning quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a different way for them, a, a path to wholeness. Um, because uh, one of the leading researchers said that in 80 to 95% of the cases, if kids go all the way through puberty, they will desist. They will grow out of their gender dysphoria. So sometimes parents just have to hold tight, mm -hmm. <laughs> hold the line, hold tight, and love their kids. And I think we have a few more questions about a similar thing when we get to same-sex attraction, but before we do that, I do just want to open it to the class for questions, specifically about transgender identity. Um, like I said, we're going to get a little more into same-sex attraction, but are there any questions from the class? Jacob? Um, suggestions, so let's just say you want to hold tight, hold that line from being pressured to, because there's the other side of the coin where we're getting social pressure to allow the kids to explore, particularly, you know, I'm foster care. So like there's a hard line where I can't pass and I have to let them explore options. So how do you hold the line as a Christian, no, as from a Christian perspective, I have my where I stand, but how do you, any suggestions to standing up to that social pressure to, this is natural, you should let them explore, don't hold the line. Right, um, so one word about that. Um, they have found that if you do 
encourage kids to socially transition, um, then the likelihood that they'll desist goes down. Um, mm. uh, if you allow them to medically transition, then I think in one study they said that 0% actually um, were reconciled to their biological genders, that, that sex, so that 80 to 95% was reduced down to zero. Um, if you push kids in the direction of transitioning. Now, I know that you're not. Um, so in that case, I mean, it's just a matter of bringing up um, some of the risks. There are tremendous risks, especially if you um, medically transition, if you take um, puberty suppressing drugs, there are a lot of risks, medical risks. And if you take cross-sex hormones, you have to take them for the rest of your life. Wouldn't it be better to just be reconciled to the, the body that God's given you? I mean, so I mean, there, there are things that you can do to encourage them. And it, your situation being a foster parent is tough because your hands are bound by the state. But for parents, I would say there's this dance um, where you don't want to push your kids so hard that they end up rebelling against you. So maybe you can say, all right, sure, you can wear that outfit, you know, but I, I draw the line when it comes to any type of medical transitions. And so, um, but you still, so you have to decide that as a parent, where that line is. On health, you might mention also the depression and suicide rate that happens when people transition. Yes. Uh, so, uh, there was a study that just came out last month, actually, um, that shows that I great data that shows that there's no difference um, in mental health um, between someone, because basically trans people, they're, they're dealing with a lot of, statistically, more depression, more anxiety, more suicidality, that is all true. But does the transition alleviate that? Um, a, a large study showed that it doesn't actually reduce the number of times they go in for psychiatric health. Um, so this one teenager, there's a video, it's called Detransition Q&A for young women who transitioned um, to live as males and then detransitioned. They're talking about their experience. And this one young woman says, um, she said, I had a lot of mental health issues and transitioning for me was my way to avoid them. I didn't address any of the other mental health issues and just sort of masked them for a while. Um, and so that's one thing that could be going on for these kids too. Mm -hmm. Are there any other questions about transgender identity? Yeah. So you identified um, kind of things to look out for that in that study children had done right before they came out to their parents. And you said one of them was hanging out with people that maybe are also going through that. Um, it sounds risky to me to say, well, you can't hang out with those friends anymore. So what would you advise doing in that situation if you notice your child is hanging around people who are going through this? Right. I, I will give you, I don't have a foolproof answer, but and one thing that I recently told a principal was, of course, I mean, you don't want your daughters to pull away from friends who are really struggling, but this is where you communicate with your daughters and say, what do you think? What do you think about... Um, Lillian and what she's going through right now and make sure you're keeping those lines of communication open and you have that window into the mind of your daughter um, because they will pull away from their families if they start to entertain, at least the study showed, if they start to entertain, or they, they probably will, if they start to entertain some of those thoughts themselves. Are there any other questions before we move into same-sex attraction? Um, again, I have a verse here that a lot of Christians will use in thinking about 
their position on same-sex attraction. Um, it's Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so I think that uh, verse encapsulates where a lot of people who will be listening to this and in our audience kind of are on this issue. And so one question I wanted to ask is, um, for me personally, I had a friend who went to the same Christian school as I did, a very small Christian school in college. And apparently he struggled for many, many years with same-sex attraction, but he never told any of his friends or his loved ones. And then one day he kind of just got to this point where he said, I can't live this lie anymore. And he just pushed everybody away and he abandoned friends, family, and went off because he didn't think that we would still be there for him, still be his friends and family if he told us this about himself. Um, and so I thought we were really close. And of course, I wondered where did I fail him as a friend that he didn't think that as a, a Christian and a, a sister in Christ, I would go alongside him in this struggle and, and pray with him and talk, you know, still be there for him. Um, and there are obviously many struggles that Christians face in silence, but thinking about this one in particular, there seems to be um, a lot of people who don't, and I guess just in thinking about our kids, you know, we don't, if our kids are thinking this way, feeling this way, we of course want to keep that window open into their minds and have them come and talk to us about that and not just push us away and reject us and everything. Uh, So how can Christians respond to our friends and our loved ones who are same-sex attracted with compassion and understanding while still also maintaining our our commitment to our biblical principles on the issue? Right, Uh, so this is, I find this helpful when thinking through this issue. You know, I say, okay, um, biblical principles when it comes to human sexuality are that all people are called to be chaste. If you're married, um, your chastity is, you exercise chastity when you remain faithful to your spouse for the rest of your life. Um, When you are um, single, um, you're able to exercise your chastity when you abstain from sexual relations. Mm -hmm. And so, and all single people are called to this. So for my same-sex attracted friends, and they are called to celibacy, and which is difficult because it's, it's lonely. They think, am I doomed to a life of loneliness then? And will I never be able to have any sort of loving relationships with people? Um, And one thing that I will sometimes, well, that they've taught me, actually, my same-sex attracted friends who are trying to live celibate lives, um, they've said there are a lot of different loving relationships that you can have. And our sort of sexually uh, driven world, we think that it's only this sort of relationship between spouses, but friendships, friendships deep and wide. And, and they said, I have all these friendships open to me, family relationships. And so one way that we can be compassionate, we don't budge on the biblical principles, um, but we're compassionate by maintaining our relationship with them, even if they don't agree with us, maybe we'll never reach agreement with them. Um, but we re- we maintain that friendship with them. We ask them questions about their jobs, about their hopes and dreams, and so we maintain that that friendship. Um, maybe there's a pain 
there's pain there because we can't quite seem to agree on this, but we tolerate the pain. Um, and when it, if it comes to family members um, or friends who are actually trying to lead celibate lives, some things we can do is try to alleviate some of the loneliness. Um, so we need to be perhaps you know more intent on reaching out to them and saying come over to my house on Christmas and Easter and and are there ways that as a Christian family we can alleviate some of that loneliness um, so they can have deep rich relationships because we all need those right just to echo that um, what Deanne's saying there um, never um, have them doubt our love for them um, you can't help it when they pull away but it's like when I tell my kids no, or you can't do that, or this is not the right practice, or they get punished for something. They should never doubt the love that we still have for them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, acting in such a way that even if they pull away, they know we love them, mm -hmm. however that looks. And if I could just add one more thing, is always to be sensitive to, has God opened a door for a conversation here? Um, I wait for that. Sometimes I have to be patient for that door to open up because if the door is shut, if there's a fortified fortress <laughs> that I'm trying to batter down <laughs> you know, in order to share the good news with somebody, then I need to wait for God to open the doors and then mm. I walk through them. Mm -hmm. Well, and so, what if if one of our child children comes to us and says, I'm experiencing same-sex attraction, what recommendation would you have on how we respond to our child saying that? Right. There are a few things. Um, first of all, remain as calm as possible. Um, thank that child. Thank you for sharing this with me. Um, I'm here for you. Reassure them. I'm here for you no matter what. I want to keep talking about these things. Um, let's stay in dialogue. Um, next, ask questions. So before jumping in, um, figure out where they are, <laughs> because sometimes it might be surprising um, what you find out. So how long have you felt this way? Um, for a week. All right, well then let's see, <laughs> let's see what happens. So you see how you adjust based upon, just ask questions and then adjust based upon that. Um, when you say you think you might be gay, do you mean you're attracted to members of the same sex or have you engaged in same sex behaviors? This is an important distinction um, because if they say, well, I'm just attracted, okay. Um, if they say I've engaged in same sex behaviors, that's something different because we can let them know, you know, attractions are unbidden. They come unbidden to us. What matters is what we do with them. And so this is a distinction we can draw for them that will be helpful to them. Um, something else that we might wanna ask is, uh, what is, especially if it's a 12-year-old, like you know when puberty hits, you just have this sort of confusing rush <laughs> of all kinds of feelings. And so maybe we can, we can ask questions and help clarify what they're talking about. When you say you're attracted, are you saying that I, I really admire him and I wanna be around him all the time? Are you saying that she's my best friend and I wanna be around, I wanna be with her and like her? Or are you saying that you're romantically attracted. <laughs> we need to help them, you know, uh, realize that there are other types of love other than just um, sexual attraction, mm -hmm. other types in sexual love. And so that's a question that we can ask them too. Um, and make sure those lines of communication are open. Um, something that you might not want to talk to your kids about, but you should keep in the back of your mind. I want to show just a little yeah. bit of data here. Um, this data comes from uh, the Ad Health survey. Uh, 
this survey took 14 years, and the purpose of it was to track kids from adolescence all the way into adulthood. And they surveyed them four times over the course of those 14 years. And what you can see here is they asked this question over and over again, whom are you attracted to? Um, what, how would you describe your sexual orientation? And what you see here is this solid blue block of those who said that I'm attracted to the opposite sex only. Um, so it, heterosexuality tends to be the most stable um, orientation. But you see all this movement um, between all of the others, I, especially if somebody says, uh, well, I, I can see, especially I taught middle school for a while, and I could see some of the, the boys that I taught saying, well, I'm not really attracted to anybody yet because I'm 12. <laughs> so, um, you know, but, you know, and saying, well, maybe then I'm gay? Am I gay? Am I asexual? You know, so um, we need to just keep this in mind. There's a lot of movement. Like, that's the point. There's a lot of movement um, from the time you're 12 until the time you're in your mid-20s. And so we keep that in the back of our minds, too, when our kids tell us, well, I think that I might be same-sex attracted. Talk to me. Let's keep an open. Let's keep open communication, and let's continue talking about this. Because that could change. Because it can change. <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, and one last thing is, um, you research shows that you might want to dissuade them for coming from coming out publicly. Um, they should talk to trusted adults, you, the parent, um, youth ministers, or whatever it might be. But uh, research has shown that um, for each year that a kid delays coming out publicly on Facebook or at school or whatever it might be, suicide risk actually drops by 80% for each year that that kid delays coming out. So there's good statistical proof to show why Let's wait. Don't pigeonhole yourself. Wait. Mm -hmm. Let's talk. Um, there's good um, scientific proof for why that's the best course. Great. Uh, thank you so much. I We're not going to get to all of these questions. Um, I do want to give an opportunity, because I said I would, <laughs> for everyone to. Uh, is there any questions that anyone has about same-sex attraction? And I guess one thing, maybe could we maybe share your notes on some of these other questions with the group through, um, sure. in, so that we can kind of benefit from the, all the great preparation you did. Um, but are there, yes, Joe. Reagan, I had a question. How do we speak to our children about what they're seeing either through the media or even in our families where there's same-sex activity going on that's visible? We want to love those people. We want to welcome them, maintain our relationship, and yet it's good to our kids maybe. And so how do we talk to them? Yes, that's a really difficult question. Um, how do we talk to our kids about what they see out in the culture? Um, number one, we talk to them in age-appropriate ways. So small children actually don't need in-depth <laughs> explanations. Um, like for example, you know, let's say that some of the, their neighborhood friends, you know, you have a lesbian couple who lives next door. This happened to a friend of mine. And so their kids play together. And for younger kids, you could say something like, well, you know, Janice's daddy isn't around. And so Miss um, Lori and, and Miss um, Carla take care of her. You know, they're the ones who take care of her. So, so for younger kids, sometimes you can just give um, a response that's age appropriate to them. And then when they're older, uh, and they're satisfied. <laughs> 
great. Um, and then when they're older, this is when you can go into a little bit more detail about this is what we believe as Christians and, and not all people believe the same way. And we uphold these beliefs because this is God's revealed word. This is his truth. Um, but we will see people um, who don't share these same beliefs. And so um, that's when we can start talking to them about the value of marriage. What is marriage? And, and so I, I would start there, age appropriate ways. Um, I have two cousins actually who were in uh, legal marriages with members of the same sex. And of course they're invited to family get togethers. We love them, they're our cousins. Um, but and they're very respectful. They don't, they're not overtly affectionate because they understand that my family is, is Christian. Um, but sometimes it might require some kind of um, tough conversation with that family member. It just says, we love you, we want you here. But um, my kids are young and I'm trying to, I, I wanna make sure that, that um, I'm able to, while they're young, I'm able to instill these morals and values in them without any confusion. So sometimes it might require some difficult conversations. In my family, it hasn't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there another quick question before we close in prayer? Um, Keith, would you mind closing? Can I? uh, Oh yes, please mention your yes. About uh, I put a handout on the tables. For some reason, it came out 14 inches out. So lots of room to uh, (laughs) doodle. Um, (coughs) These are just some resources I was thinking of, and I don't want to blame this list on anybody else. But um, let me point out um, just a few of these in particular. Uh, the Christian Studies is the journal that Austin Grad does every year. This next issue is coming out in May, and it's going to be on the topic of sexual ethics. So I've just put that there as something we're working on now, and I think will be useful for the church. Um, Robert Gagnon is really good on issues of what the Bible has to say about particularly homosexual practice. Um, that book is uh, pretty heavy duty if you want to wade into it, but I would definitely recommend the second entry under his name there, The Bible and Homosexuality, these are two um, discs, DVDs, just lectures. So it's a total of about three hours of uh, very uh, interesting presentation. And as best I can tell, I've, I've seen the videos, is a, is a summary of that long book, but in a very accessible way. We have these DVDs on order. If they're not yet here, they will be very soon at the church. We have two sets of them. So you can check these out um, through the office. Pam will um, have them. I would highly recommend that. Gender resource guides is the thing that just came out, I think. Oh, great. Um, We have that here. Um, You can download that for free on uh, their website and take a look at it, very helpful. And I just note there in my annotation that this is a a resource that people from all different groups have come together to. We've got Heritage Foundation, we've got conservative evangelicals, we've got Women's Liberation Front, radical feminism, (laughs) who are all on board with um, trying to educate people about um, the transgender identity uh, agenda that's going on, sort of how you can uh, address that. And then the very f- uh, last one there is sexuality and gender, something that Deanne and the Austin Institute put together that I'd also highly recommend. And you wanna say something about uh, these also? Sure, um, this right here uh, just draws research. We have graphics that show all the research that backs up everything that we've been talking about today. 
And then um, I also have this, which I will send to Reagan along with the notes, um, but guidance for parents of teens with rapid onset gender dysphoria. She actually gives some very concrete tips to parents. Um, this woman, again, um, she's kind of one of these radical feminists, <laughs> um, but who really stands firm on these issues. So um, I have this too, which I'll Great. send. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to mention next week we'll be all coming together to kind of do a wrap-up class and hopefully we'll have a chance to speak with each other about some of these topics. So um, we won't have a guest next week, but we'll all be uh, sharing as home builders and as a community. So hope you can join us for that. And then we'll go ahead and close in prayer quickly. Um, Keith, if you don't mind closing oh, sure. us in prayer, and then we'll go grab our kids. Yeah. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and discuss these issues. We're thankful for uh, Deanne and for the work she does at Austin Institute. Uh, we pray that you would bless their ministry. Uh, we ask that you would bless all of our families um, with uh, these issues as we uh, raise our kids, as we try to um, instill in them uh, the uh, way of life that you would have for us as we seek your will and seek to follow it, that you would give us wisdom and discernment as uh, we raise them in a culture that seems to be uh, more and more hostile to these principles. Um, give us um, open eyes to know how to show your love to those around us, and may everything we do and say be for your glory. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.